Imagine, you're more than two hours into your flight from Dallas to Toronto, a smooth and uneventful trip on an uncrowded aircraft. As the evening mail service wraps up, you notice a strange smell that seems to be growing stronger as it passes through the plane. Within minutes, the entire cabin begins to fill with thick, dark smoke. As you and your fellow passengers gasp for air, you remember the plane is still airborne. Will the plane touch down in time to avoid disaster? What created the smoke? And will you survive long enough to find out? This is Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. Welcome to Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast, and welcome to week 712 of quarantine. Yay. <laughs> I feel like your enthusiasm enthusiasm is waning a bit, Shelley. I think I think everybody's is at this point, right? I mean, we're all we're all staying home. We know why we're staying home. We're staying safe. It's really important to do that. And there's there's only so much of your house that you can explore until you're like, okay, I think I think I have run out of good things to do here, you know. Yep. So now I'm resorting to refrigeration and. Um, <laughs> Binge watching TV. That's pretty much what I'm doing. Refrigeration. I love it. <laughs> there was a thing a while ago. It was online. It was a map that somebody put together, like a floor plan for an apartment. And they put little wine glasses in different rooms. And it said, I'm planning my weekend wine tour. I feel like that's about where we are right now. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so we are so glad you're here. Um, I'm Stephanie. That's Shelly. We are your hosts today. And um, I am really excited to hear that you've been doing a lot of binge watching and visitation with your refrigerator, because that is basically what I have been doing, too. Although I will also tell you that in addition to that, um, I've also been doing a little bit of reading. Usually nothing exciting. Um, in this case, I happen to stumble upon a survey. I miss travel. You miss travel, too, right? All the time, every day, <laughs> constantly. <laughs> I found this uh, this survey. It was the 2019 Qualtrics survey called the Airline Pain Index. Have you heard about that? No, do tell. Oh, it's great. It's great. Basically, what it does is it ranks the top things people hate about flying. I'm not going to lie. It made me feel really, really good to read that because I miss flying. It was good to remember that there are things about it that are not fantastic. Ah. So... Any guesses as to what the top five things people hate about flying are? I imagine it's probably has something to do with leg room. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not getting there on time, maybe. Mm-hmm. You're mm. on the right track. Yeah, I feel like I feel like those are like the big two two big ones for me. I'm sure there's like others. So yeah, let's. Oh hear it. well, I mean the list goes on forever. The top five. Lost luggage, hate that. <laughs> Hidden fees, really hate that. Canceled flights, unfriendly cabin crew, and airplane bathrooms. Ah, I like yeah. the bathrooms part because that's so true. It's always like you literally just prepare yourself for like what is behind the door and you have <laughs> no idea. And sometimes it's like, okay, okay, this is good. Somebody's just cleaning this. You can tell. <laughs> Other times it's like, what has happened? What, where am I? You know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, you want to, you want to either go early or don't go at all. Exactly. Like plan that appropriately. Yep. So, all right. Today's story is not about lost luggage. It's not about hidden fees. It's not about canceled flights and it's not about unfriendly crew members. Unfortunately, it is about airplane bathrooms. So, Settle in. This week's story is the tale of Air Canada Flight 797. 
As a quick note, you'll find all of the resources that we use on our website, which is taketotheskypodcast.com. And for this week's episode, we include resources from articles from the New York Times and WCPO in Cincinnati. Uh, there's some great information from the FAA, as well as the NTSB Aircraft Accident Report, a fantastic show called Air Disasters, which is on the Smithsonian Channel. If you haven't watched it, oh man, you're missing out. And also Wikipedia. Um, and I definitely recommend going to our website to check out some of those resources because we'll also throw in a couple of bonus pictures. Uh, some of these, uh, some of the incident was also captured through video footage, interviews, and pictures. So we'll include a few of those in case you are interested in learning a bit more. For now, though, let's take a journey back through time to June 2nd of 1983. Air Canada Flight 797 was a passenger flight that departed from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport in Texas. The flight's final destination was Montreal, but it was scheduled to stop in Toronto before continuing east to Montreal. The aircraft that day was a McDonnell Douglas DC-932. Normal configurations for that plane seat about 90 people, and there were only about 41 passengers on board this particular flight. So a bit less than half full, um, perhaps a little bit of extra leg room, not so crowded, something we don't typically get to see uh, in travel these days. So there were five crew members on board that day, including Captain Donald Cameron and First Officer Claude Wimet. Both pilots were experienced with the aircraft. In fact, Captain Cameron had 13,000 flight hours at the time of flight 797, and close to 5,000 of those were flying a DC-9. And first officer we met had 5,600 hours of flight experience with almost half of those hours on the DC-9. So both certainly knew their way around the aircraft. In addition to the pilots, flight 797 had three flight attendants on board, Sergio Benetti, Laura Kayama and Judith Davidson. It's actually a pretty seasoned crew uh, for the most part. Benetti and Davidson both had about 10 years of experience working as flight attendants for Air Canada, and Kayama had seven years of experience. Uh, so again, you know, knowledge about, knowledgeable about procedures and protocols on board. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. It really doesn't. Um, and before we, uh, we start chatting a little bit about what happened, I want to pause for a moment and chat about travel in the 80s. Travel in the 80s was, uh, let's say, different than it is today. Uh, for one thing, travel was possible. The 1980s are a different time. Um, it's a time of things like free checked luggage. It's a time of no restrictions on cabin luggage. Meals were often included with your ticket. And you may have just bought your ticket moments before the flight at a counter. You may have paid cash. You would have received a ticket that was written in handwriting and not printed from a computer. Um, in addition, smoking was allowed on board. So. I mean, really, with the exception of smoking, there wasn't a whole lot to dislike about travel in 1983. It really sounds like a luxury. Like it's it's something like, hey, like I get to do this. This is really cool. And you know, I get all of my needs taken care of while I'm in the sky, you know? It's amazing. You talk about the golden age of air travel. And I know that typically that is more like the 50s and 60s back when people would dress in suits and they might mm -hmm. be served wine and now we're talking a little bit more about microwave dinners. It's a little closer to what we have today. But even still, you know, thinking about a time where you didn't have to worry about how much luggage you were taking on board, you could just pack what you needed without wondering if it was going to be 51 pounds instead of 50 pounds or was your, you know, flight 
or where your suitcase is going to fit into the overhead con- compartments. I mean, it was just a simpler time, a better time. Perhaps. The one thing that does kind of concern me is the smoking in the same proximity with all that hairspray. Remember like in the eighties, <laughs> everybody had big hair and all I can think of is like, so I'm smoking the side of someone that has the most amazing Farrah Fawcett do ever. And oh my gosh, that is totally a flammable situation. So that's, that's the one it, thing that gives me some pause. You know, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought about. Um, and generally smoking's a bad idea anyway. They did at one point change the cabin configuration so that you didn't have people who were smoking all throughout the cabin. In the beginning, I think that is exactly what happened. But later on, uh, they had a smoking section and a non-smoking section. Which is so hilarious. Like like a curtain is going to prevent the smoke from coming through. Like row 11, no smoking, but row 12, have at it. Totally fine. Whatever you need to do to get through the flight, right? Um, So uh, thinking about... Uh, Air Canada Flight 797, they had been in flight for about two and a half hours when the cockpit voice recorder caught a brief exchange that would, in hindsight, become the moment when things started to go wrong. At 6.51 p.m., first officer we met was having his dinner, and he and Captain Cameron were joking about the quality of the meal, as a matter of fact. It was seafood that night, by the way. Um, and they were talking about the fact that we met would actually have to finish his meal before Cameron could eat. As it turns out, you can't necessarily focus on flying a plane if you're also focused on eating your dinner. So they would take turns. Uh, Cameron heard three loud pops over his shoulder. It was nothing major. As it turns out, there were three circuit breakers that had tripped, uh, which were visible to him. All three of them were connected to the lavatory at the rear of the aircraft. And as it turns out, neither pilot was particularly concerned by that. The evening mail service was wrapping up in the cabin, and circuit breakers are more likely to trip at that point in a flight because so many people get up to use the restroom when they're done eating. Um, Captain Cameron waited, it was about eight minutes before attempting to reset them. Uh, That would give an opportunity for traffic to die down a little bit. And when he did try to reset them at 6.59, the circuits popped right back out. So by this point, the pilot surmised that someone must have flushed something and jammed the toilet. Um, There really wasn't any additional conversation about the issue because it happens. I mean, things happen. And I I just love that, like, what's happening with the toilets is so important right now. Well, exactly. And I mean, they're a little more than halfway through the flight at this point. Uh, There were other lavatories on board. So it's not the end of the world. So outside of the cockpit and in the main cabin, passengers were starting to realize that something was off. Shortly after the circuit breakers tripped, a passenger who was seated near the lavatory let flight attendant Judith Davidson know that there was a strange smell coming from the back of the plane. Davidson was very quickly able to determine that the smell was coming from the laboratory. In fact, she opened the door to peek inside and could see some light smoke that was starting to fill the bathroom, but she didn't see any flames or any other signals that would clearly indicate that there was a fire. What was interesting is that it also didn't smell like fire. One passenger who was seated near the lavatory, a woman named Connie Kirch, said it smelled, quote, wiry. So not like fire that you'd think of with wood burning or something like that. She said it smelled wiry. Not good. David, (laughs) exactly. I mean, well, not, you don't want to smell anything like that at 33,000 feet, uh, but especially not something that smells like wires. Right. So 
Davidson notified Sergio Benetti, who was the chief flight attendant on the on board that day, and he went into the lavatory to investigate. He also saw the smoke and also didn't see any flames. So he sprayed the entire lavatory with a fire extinguisher out of abundance of caution. But since there weren't any flames, he couldn't be sure that he put out whatever fire might have been started in there. As Benetti was out back fighting an invisible fire, just three minutes after the circuit breaker reset was attempted, by the way, it's now 7.02, Laura Kayama delivered Captain Cameron's dinner to him, and she brought with her a side of bad news, which, according to the flight recorder, uh, her quote was, excuse me, there's a fire in the washroom at the back. They just went back to go put it out. Captain Cameron decides, rightly so, to hold off on dinner, and he sent First Officer We Met back to investigate. As the captain was learning about this still unidentified issue, the passengers are also quickly figuring out that there's something very wrong. In addition to the fact that they had seen someone walk by with a fire extinguisher, smoke is starting to fill the cabin itself. Well, this is not good. Exactly. Um, It's only been a couple of minutes since they first noticed something was wrong. And so the flight attendants decide to start moving people. They, you know, it's not a full flight. They're scattered throughout the cabin. They began to move everybody toward the front of the aircraft. And at this point, remembering it's only been a couple of minutes since the smell was first noticed and the first traces of smoke had appeared, the passengers, you know, they're they're concerned enough. Uh, you know, there's definitely a sense of unrest and everyone's very unsettled about this. It's interesting, though. Captain Cameron was not particularly concerned about what was happening. You might think that the threat of fire on board is something that would immediately send them into some form of a mayday incident. Um But there's a great quote. This actually is from the Smithsonian Channel's Air Disasters episode on this flight. He was interviewed about what happened. And he said, you've got to remember, in 1983, people were allowed to smoke in the aircraft. And there had already been a number of incidents in the industry. So it really didn't alarm me that much. He figured this is probably some sort of a cigarette-related incident. And that's a really good point because I keep forgetting, even as you're telling the story, even though we talked about the fact that smoking was allowed on board, it was very common on flights back then. I keep thinking of this story, not through that lens though. So to hear him kind of explain that, it it helps me to understand because I've always heard flight, uh, fire on a flight is everyone's worst nightmare, right? It's, It's one of the most explosive you know, forgive the pun, um, situations (laughs) that can potentially happen. So hearing him say, as a reminder, remember, this could have just been literally somebody flicked a cigarette butt, you know, in the middle of a bunch of paper towels in a bathroom, which is completely different than a bomb on board or something else creating a fire situation. Oh, exactly. And to know that this kind of occurrence was common enough that it wouldn't send warning signals out for him. I thought that was interesting, too. There were enough reports out there, other pilots who heard about small fires started on board because of smoking, that it really didn't signal to him that there was something or potentially something that could be going very wrong out back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, just a really interesting illustration of how very different the times were, you know, and this was, you know, only, well, almost 40 years ago at this point. So first officer we met was able to walk back and assess the situation, and he determined that it it was a good idea at that point to make an emergency landing. He wasn't able to fully identify what was going on, just like the flight attendants hadn't been able to do so. Um, 
he came back. He shared that he thought it was a good idea to head down. But flight attendant Benetti came back with a different recommendation. He said that the smoke was clearing a bit ever since he used the fire extinguisher, and he thought the situation was improving. Sure enough, the smoke didn't seem quite as bad as it had when we met had investigated just a few moments before. In addition to that, uh, reports from others who were on board, from passengers in the cabin, they also noted that the smoke was starting to dissipate a little bit. So now it's 7.06 p.m., and we met decides he's going to go back one more time and d- double check just to see whether or not it was truly getting better. Um, Captain Cameron suggested he take a pair of goggles and a mask with him just in case, asked him to be sure he didn't get incapacitated because he wanted to make sure there were two pilots on board uh, who were you know, fully able to respond if there were any issues. And Captain Cameron kept the flight at cruising altitude as we met, went back to find out once and for all if there was anything worth uh, looking into an emergency landing. Because it was really, at this point, seeming as though it was indeed a bin fire that they hadn't been able to see, but they were able to extinguish, he figured an emergency landing was probably going to be avoided anyway. That is when the master caution light came on in the cockpit. So, The master caution light is one of those flashing red lights you really don't want to see in an aircraft that's flying 33,000 feet above the ground. The master caution indicates a loss of electrical power to the cabin, which is the unquestionable sign that there was something very, very wrong on board. Captain Cameron immediately noticed that many of the plane's instruments were going offline, and he was left with what he called a primitive set of instruments that provided basic control over the aircraft, and he equated to being similar to what you would find in a World War II bomber. Basically, the plane is now exceptionally difficult to handle and control, and it probably goes without saying the ride is a lot less smooth and comfortable for everyone, including Captain Cameron. So he radioed to the air traffic controller in nearby Indianapolis, which is where the plane was at this point, to let them know that there was an electrical issue impacting the aircraft. And moments later, air traffic control noted that Flight 797 disappeared from the radar. The plane itself, though, didn't lose communication with ATC. That ends up becoming an enormous saving grace. So basically, most of the instruments are gone They do still have radio communication with the tower, but we're starting to see now that minutes are very, very important with the next set of decisions that they're going to make. At this point, first officer we met returned from the lavatory, and he noted during this trip, it wasn't even possible to open the door to the bathroom because the handle was too hot to touch. Oh, no. Remembering... We're talking minutes here. In less than five minutes, it had gone from looking in and seeing light gray smoke to not being able to open the door anymore. So at this point, an emergency landing was inevitable. And no sooner had we met shared the bad news about not being able to open the lavatory door, the plane's emergency power was lost as well. And at this point, the cockpit voice recorder ceases to function. Oh, my goodness. At 7.08, Cameron declared Mayday. And he was immediately granted clearance to land at the Cincinnati airport, which was 28 miles from the plane's location. They weren't that far away. 28 miles goes by quickly on a plane, but it was not going to be an easy descent or landing. Remember, the plane's main systems had failed. Some were continuing to fail, including, by the way, a part of the plane called the horizontal stabilizer. 
That effectively froze the plane at its cruising altitude of 33,000 feet. Cameron was able to force the plane into a descent, but that process involved basically fighting the plane for control and using his body weight to push against the equivalent of 44 pounds of pressure that the plane was thrusting back at him. It is every bit as exhausting as it sounds, and 28 miles is a very long time to sustain that kind of physical exertion. Oh my gosh, it's like it's like trying to do something at full strength for a long period of time, and I'm sure he knows that he has no choice. Like he has to do it. The stakes at this point are literally life and death for everybody. Yeah, and I don't know if this is a good example or a you know a good way to think about it but i'm picturing almost you know like if you do a plank for example you know if you're working out and you're in plank position your body weight is effectively pushing down on your hands and your wrists and there's a reason most people can't hold that position for too long because it hurts it's a lot of pressure and i'm almost picturing you know that kind of effort that kind of body weight going into forcing the plane to descend so Thinking about that, you know, this is 708 and it's going to take him about 10 minutes to get that plane on the ground. So that's a very long time to be stuck in that position in addition to the stress, in addition to the new information that's coming through, in addition to the communication with the tower. It's a lot to handle in a short amount of time when there are 46 people who are on board who are counting on you to be able to land. So... Yeah, 28 miles is a long time, but it's also a long time if you're in the cabin, which is where 41 passengers and three crew members found themselves. The plane at this point, it's lost most of its electrical power. That means the PA system isn't working. So the flight attendants have to move passengers to the front of the plane, but more and more dark smoke is starting to flow from the lavatory and even from the seams in the ceiling. You know, you think about the plane having kind of tunnels and channels and things that are all interconnected. Once smoke gets into any part of that, it can start to go through the plane and then release through cracks in the seams. So it's even coming in from the ceiling at this point in time. And which would be terrifying to see, oh my gosh. Like, right? We're all huddled together. So it's already going to feel a little claustrophobic. We're going to be yeah. toward the front of the plane. And then all of a sudden through all of the little cracks and crevices, we're going to start seeing smoke billowing in, which to me, I, I am surprised it's not creating a total panic situation there. Well, And remember, yeah, no one knows why this is happening. There has not been a lot of elapsed time between when people first started noticing the smell, which is what they noticed first in the cabin, to when smoke starts to fill the cabin to the point that breathing is becoming difficult. And... And in fact, it's it's really because breathing is becoming hard that flight attendants are also having trouble sharing information with the passengers. They don't know much more about the situation than um, the captain and the first officer know at this point in time. But even still, they're struggling to breathe too. So there's not a lot they can do as far as talking about what's going on. What they did do, though, is start handing out wet towels and instructing people to hold them over their noses and mouths when taking breaths. If you're wondering, by the way, as I was, why wouldn't they just deploy the oxygen masks? Isn't that what they're there for? When you can't breathe on the plane, you drop the masks, right? They're only used when the, cap when the cabin depressurizes. If there's a fire on board, oxygen masks can only add to the risk because what is it that feeds a fire? It's oxygen. Oh, yeah. Yep. Makes sense. And that's 
that's in a way kind of crazy. The one safety feature you think you can count on in a case like this is the one thing that could very quickly- We can't use. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that goes way past the point of no return. Um, And even though it feels kind of tempting to do that because there, again, is still no visible fire on board. It's Mm -hmm. just smoke and the crew does not know what's causing it. So the smoke and the heat, they continue. It becomes almost unbearable. And in fact, some passengers begin making decisions such as putting on suit jackets or ensuring their personal identification is in their pockets to make it easier for investigators to identify them. A lot of them didn't think they'd survive. That is so terrible to hear. Can you imagine making that choice or thinking like, this is so hopeless. I at least want them to be able to identify that I was on the plane. Yeah. And that's heartbreaking. <laughs> that's so heartbreaking. To have, to, to think those could be your final thoughts, you know, to think that that is, that is where your mind goes. I just want them to know I was here. I want them to know which body was mine. And although there were passengers who were doing that, there were also passengers who held on to optimism, even knowing that this is a really dire situation. There's a passenger on board named Graham Wright. He's a businessman who was returning home to Toronto that day. And when interviewed by the New York Times, this is his quote. He said, I didn't know whether we were going to put to put down on a river or a field or a runway. The pilot seemed to be in control. I felt sure we would make it. Somehow the crew managed to convince everybody that we would make it. How powerful is that? Yeah. Because, you know, you're also thinking... This is terrifying for the crew. And they have the ability to to think of things like wet towels that might make it easier to breathe. Some of this is not necessarily part of their training. Bringing people to the front of the aircraft actually is not part of their training. This is not something they're instructed to do. This is gut instinct. This is what's going to save lives in this moment, in this situation. And this is why I think it's so important to remember, you know, flying, especially in today's terms, is really a service, right? It's a service commodity. And so we expect amazing customer service, which I think sometimes makes us forget that the roles of the flight attendants and the crew is to keep us safe. Ultimately, that is actually and truly why they're there. And this is such a great example of them using their training and their experience, right? So maybe not something they learned, but something that they know to be true and useful to help kind of maintain a little bit of control in this rapidly deteriorating situation. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, I think rapidly deteriorating is exactly the thing to focus on. Minutes have passed at this point in time. It has gone from a typical after dinner sort of ambiance to, you know, practically being in the fetal position, the crash position in this case, breathing as as well as you can given the circumstances. You know, it's it's a very scary situation. And the flight crew was able to provide an incredible sense of calm in those moments, knowing that they didn't necessarily know if they would land safely or not either. So their ability to put their own emotions aside in favor of creating the kind of environment that would hopefully save lives, I think, is something that really needs to be noted. At yeah, this it's point. heroic. Totally it heroic. It is. It yeah. is truly heroic. And speaking of, by the way, you know, there's a lot that the flight attendants don't necessarily know uh, going into this. You know, it's not necessarily part of their training. There's one other task that they had to undertake that they were not trained to do. And that was teaching people seated in the exit rows how to open the emergency door. 
that was not the kind of thing that they were taught to do. And that also was not instruction that was usually given to passengers in a way that it is today. So thinking about this too, as the smoke is filling the cabin, there are several passengers in exit rows who were also tasked with trying to learn this one last potentially life-saving role that they would fill if the plane was able to land safely enough that they could attempt to deplane. So add that to the list of things that the flight crew had to do and that people in this moment of terror and confusion had to learn and process so that as soon as touchdown happened, they might be able to get those doors open. So they're literally learning this because they have to, their life depends on it. It's like the highest stress, probably situation that any of us can be in. And we have to have our own wits about us enough to get the steps. That is an impossible task, as we know. Like, that's a very hard thing for anyone to do, let alone somebody who is under extreme duress like that. So, I mean, but kudos to everyone for for trying and knowing that that's something that they had to focus on. Well, and, you know, I got to say it, too. I have been on plenty of planes where they've said, please take out the safety card in your seat back pocket. And I've just kind of brushed off that part of the instruction because, you know, I'm not going to need it, first of all. Yeah. I I mean, most people would never pick that up. If you're seated in an exit row and they come by and they say, I I need a verbal yes, that you're going to be able to help in case of an emergency. How many people just say yes without actually reading that card? Well, I think most of the time it's because they want the extra (laughs) leg room. Oh my gosh. That's why you get that seat. That is absolutely why you get that seat. You do not get that seat to help in an emergency. And in this case, not only did those people end up in those seats, they had no training. There was no expectation they would have training going into this. So that that is where they are as they are in their 28-mile descent um, heading into the airport. So as Air Canada Flight 797 approached Cincinnati and it made its first contact with air control, for that airport, the cockpit is now filling up with smoke. So the smoke has now moved from the lavatory straight through to the front of the plane. And to compound all of the issues that they were facing, the electrical failures, the loss of instruments, now the smoke is making it hard to see. So enter Gregory Karam, who was the approach controller in Cincinnati that day. He had to provide the flight crew with complete visual guidance during the descent and landing. Captain Cameron couldn't see out of the windows at this point and in these final moments before landing. And once Karam had the plane in sight, he was the one who told Cameron when to turn and when to descend. In fact, Cameron credited, or, uh, Cameron credited Karam with the plane's landing later and said, quote, we were steered to the airport by the most capable air traffic control controller whose voice I have ever heard. Wow. Powerful so he statement. literally is basically from his tower flying the plane, not necessarily controlling it, but giving all of the directions like step by step, do this at this point, do this at this altitude yeah, so that the pilots can focus on landing because they can't see and they don't have- can't see a thing. The instruments, right? So they don't have the artificial horizon to help them or anything. And that would help them clearly see the runway and steer toward it anyway. So Yeah, exactly. And remembering too, not only are they having trouble seeing, the smoke is making it hard for them to breathe. So there's a lot going into just their ability to concentrate on what Karam is saying to them just so that they can follow directions and get the plane on the ground. And they did. 
Imagine that guy. He came to work. Obviously, you know, they have a very stressful job. Like air traffic controllers, we all know, have some of the most stressful jobs in the world. And they are also there working to keep us safe. And this is something that I can imagine he never anticipated doing that day. And no, there he no, was not at answering all. the call of duty, you know? He, uh, it, well, exactly. Yeah. He actually had started his shift about two hours earlier. So, I mean, he, he you think usually it's going to be a pretty easy night. You know, you're making contact with flights. For the most part, they have instruments helping them land. You're not really expecting to be in the middle of something like this. Thank God he was there. Uh, Because at 7.20 p.m., which, by the way, 29 minutes after the circuit breakers first popped in the cockpit, Flight 797 made a hard but safe landing on the runway in Cincinnati, where they were greeted with fire trucks and emergency responders, all of whom were hoping to get everybody safely out of the plane. At this point, too, they still are not sure what's going on inside of the plane. So with the plane stopped... Uh, And just because it was on the ground, it didn't necessarily mean that the danger was over. The plane slowed to a stop. The smoke was so thick and dark that even though they were on the ground, people were not able to see. And breathing still is becoming more and more difficult. Flight attendant Sergio Benetti is the first person who's able to open a door and begin begin helping people off of the plane. Disembarking, though, is a slow process. Uh, They eventually got three of the doors open, certainly with credit to those seated in exit rows. And some people inside of the plane were able to find doors, but many others became disoriented in what was now pitch blackness, very heavy, very thick and dark smoke. And while many people were able to feel their way toward the front of the plane and eventually into the light of day, there were others who were kind of guided toward the back of the plane instead. So in the cockpit, um, first officer we met was able to escape through an emergency window. Um, He was able to jump from the window uh, basically 16 feet to the ground below him. Wow. Captain Cameron didn't follow him, though. Uh, After fighting the plane for 28 miles from the start of the emergency descent until touchdown, he was exhausted. He was disoriented. He was basically unable to move from his seat. We met, saw him. Uh, He could see him in the window as the smoke was sort of moving about uh, the cockpit. Noticed he looked dazed and was kind of slumped over the wheel. And we met shouted for firefighters to soak him with foam in the hopes it might shock him back into action. That request and the firefighters' compliance with that request ended up saving his life. Oh, wow. The foam was freezing cold and it roused him just enough. He was able to climb out of the window and fall to the ground below. That's, that's incredible. That's how taxing that was. I mean, that is, that's how much it took out of him. And that is also the quick thinking that we met had. Mm-hmm. It's 7.22 p.m. now at this point. It's 90 seconds after the aircraft's doors began to open. 18 passengers, all five crew members have made it safely out of the plane. Captain Cameron ends up being the last person who made it out alive. Oh, Wow. Moments after he got out, moments after we met, encouraged the firefighters to soak him in foam and he climbed out of the plane, a flash fire consumed the entire interior of the plane's fuselage, which trapped all of the other passengers inside and in effect then ended 23 lives. Oh my goodness. And how, again, so just thinking about, right, they landed 
Yes. The, yeah. the smoke is, is blinding, right? It's, it's, you can't see anything, but the lights on the floor, yep. but you're still probably thinking we might have a chance because we're here, we're on the ground and it still ends up not being the case for everybody knowing that the crew has done virtually all they can. And the yeah. pilots have been through so much in this ordeal. There's not, there are no really other options. And then that happens. I mean, that's, that's so heartbreaking. Well, it is. Um, for a lot of people, as soon as the plane was on the ground, there was that expectation they would just get off. And in fact, uh, there was one passenger on board who shared her experience from a hospital uh, when all of this was over and said she was, when the plane landed, she found herself basically in a line waiting to be escorted off the plane, waiting for the door to open. And she said, I know this is not a line I want to be in because you, I mean, in addition to the fact that the conditions are still getting worse and worse and worse in there, no, seconds as they go by could mean the difference between life and death. Mm -hmm. For most people, they're expecting that to be smoke inhalation and suffocation. In this case, as the fire had been burning, it had produced this toxic combustible smoke that collected in the cabin. We had talked about the oxygen masks and why they weren't deployed. And when you think about it, once the doors began to open, they it connected the smoke inside with an endless supply of oxygen. So when the smoke, the fire, and the oxygen connected, the flash fire was inevitable and unstoppable. And it took less than two minutes for those conditions to occur. So basically, the one thing that could have saved them, which is getting outside of the plane, ended up igniting the flames that killed the rest of the people on the plane. That's exactly right. Oh, my There's no good solution to a problem like that. And that is how Air Canada Flight 797 ended on June 2nd in 1983. Emergency landing, fiery blaze, 23 passengers who lost their lives. So at this point, you may be wondering if investigators ever figured out just what caused the disaster. Before we talk about that, and there is a lot to unpack with that, I wanted to share a little bit of information about the victims and the survivors. There were 41 passengers who were on the plane. Uh, they included Graham Wright and Connie Kirch, uh, both of whom I quoted above. Uh, but they were also joined by Randy Morris and his wife, Lisa Eric, from Texas, who are en route to Europe to celebrate their third wedding anniversary. Many of the survivors gave interviews afterwards, including several who actually, they were interviewed right from their hospital rooms. I mean, it's just incredible footage since it's less than a day between when they were able to escape from the plane and when those interviews took place. And I am going to include a couple of those links in case anyone's interested in watching some of those. They really are worth it. I mean, it's incredible and gives such depth and perspective to this particular disaster. The thing you notice when you listen to these interviews is how incredibly just universally calm each person seemed to be even hours after this happened. That for me was an enormous surprise. You'd think you'd be an, just a mess of nerves and emotions and people seemed very calm and very willing to talk about what had happened to them. Of the 23 people who were lost that day, 21 of them were Canadian citizens and two were from the United States. One of the passengers was particular, particularly notable. 
Uh, his name was Stan Rogers. And to this day, he's a recognized folk musician. He did not make it off of the plane. His music is still celebrated. It's often covered by fellow artists. And it's important to recognize him too. His legacy not only lives through the music uh, and the contributions he made in that area, uh, but also through those of his son, Nathan, who was only four years old when Stan passed away on the flight. So when you talk about these stories, there's always a lot to think about as far as investigations, as far as changes to safety and to uh, aviation policy. But at the core, these are stories about people. And it's important to recognize that there are a lot of people impacted, whether they were survivors, whether they were victims, whether they were friends or family. And in this case, it was not a full flight, but it was absolutely full of people whose lives were either very much changed from that day moving forward or ended in a very tragic and very untimely way. Yeah. I mean, that's such an important point, right? Because every single person represents someone's child, sibling, you know, parent. And yeah, those effects t really you know, impact those families for the rest of their existence. It never, oh, never goes away. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's really easy to say 23 people dead, you know, lump it all together. But then you start really, like you said, unpacking it. And it's a person with a life who had people who love them that are no yeah. longer on the planet and their family is left to pick up the pieces. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And they're left with a lot of questions. And in fact, I mean, really up to this point, there are nothing but questions. We know what happened, but we have no idea why. The initial investigation was nightmarish for the NTSB. Um, they actually included a diagram uh, in the some of the earliest parts of the report that indicated where both survivors and victims were located based on where they were seated during the final descent in the accident report. Investigators noted that there were some people who were found seated with their seatbelts on. They may have passed away or become asphyxiated from smoke inhalation before landing. But there were others who were found on the ground in what were very clear attempts to locate an exit, which suggested that some people survived the landing but perished when the flash fire consumed the fuselage. The, they did take blood samples from the victims, and they were able to confirm that cyanide, fluoride, and carbon monoxide were present in their systems, and those also contributed to the cause of death. So some people, I, I think that is one of the most tragic parts of this. There were some people who survived long enough to know they were on the ground, but didn't get through the fire. Absolutely. That's the worst part. Absolutely. Yeah. The interior of the plane was a complete loss, uh, and it made it very difficult for investigators to confidently determine what the cause of the fire was. In the early days of the investigation, the FBI was involved, and that was because one of their first thoughts was that terrorism was suspected as a cause. They didn't end up finding any evidence of an explosive device or any other object that might have contributed to an intentional fire. And so ultimately, the FBI concluded that it was accidental, and they turned the entire investigation back over to the NTSB. When it came to accidents, though, there were a few possibilities. So specifically, the NTSB focused on what the pilot suspected from the very beginning, a cigarette that was left to burn in the lavatory's trash bin. The lavatory itself was significantly compromised by the fire. There really was not very much left. But the investigators were able to locate the trash bin that was in there. 
And they found it in the interior of the bin that most things were still intact. In fact, there were things like pieces of paper inside that weren't burned or singed. If there were pieces of paper that were burned or singed, or if there were ashes inside of the bin, that would be consistent with a fire starting in the trash bin. But without that evidence, they ruled out cigarettes as the cause of the fire. So now we're basically left with spontaneous combustion, right? (laughs) I mean, we've ruled out all of the cases that would be the most likely candidates for producing this kind of tragedy. But that's certainly not what happened here. Investigators split their focus between studying the melted burn shell of the aircraft for any clues they could find, the cockpit voice recorder, and the plane's flight history. This is where some of the pieces begin to come together. So the NTSB found that the plane, the aircraft that carried Flight 797, had 76 different maintenance issues noted in its logs, which is a high number for most aircraft. Additionally, and this is perhaps the most telling, an explosive decompression in the plane's bulkhead had contributed to the need for an emergency landing four years earlier. There had been some ensuing electrical damage to the plane that was repaired after that incident, but a flawed or a faulty repair job absolutely could have contributed to the issue that took down Flight 797. In addition to that, investigators zeroed in on the cockpit voice recorder, and they found another clue. About three minutes before the circuit breakers tripped, the recorder picked up eight separate sounds consistent with electrical arcs. If you don't know a whole lot about electrical arcing, it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, Basically, electrical arcing is when electricity jumps from its intended path, like wiring, for example, to a different path. It happens a lot with things like frayed wires or old wires or when wiring has been poorly maintained or repaired. And the arcing that was picked up by the voice recorder wouldn't have been audible to Captain Cameron or first officer we met. So even though it was clear that there was arcing, electrical arcing, that would have happened a few minutes before the circuit breakers popped, the captain and the first officer would not have known about it. It's not audible to the human ear. It was only picked up on the recorder. And this is something that we, not this specific set of events, but this is something we hear over and over in these stories, which is it's these things that happen because of one thing. So in this case, potentially maintenance or, you know, you'll tell us obviously, but something that happened before (laughs) that led to this and it was all unknown to the pilots. So the pilots didn't have the information that they needed to, you know, take a certain action, maybe even 90 seconds sooner than they did. When I hear that, it's like, oh, that's so unfair. It's so unfair for everyone on board, you know? Three minutes could have made a huge difference in this case. But yeah, it was not information that they were privy to. They had no idea that that was happening. The good news here, though, is that it it gave the investigators something else to look into. And they were able to trace the sound of the arcing to a generator that was located under the plane's lavatory. Unfortunately, though, it turned into a bit of a dead end. Although the arcing sound was a very good clue, the investigators couldn't 
fully and confidently confirm that the arcing sound occurred before the start of the fire itself. Remember, there was no reported flames, no smoke at that point. They just couldn't pinpoint that that happened in a timeline that would have explained what had gone on. This investigation has a lot of twists and turns. Oh, does <laughs> it ever? I, I, in this, the, I'm the like, report, oh, we just found out what it was. Not quite. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> the report is 106 pages long, and I swear I read like every one of them because it was. It's like reading a mystery thriller or something. Like every time you think you've got the answer, you don't have the answer. And so, yeah, I mean, this this ends up being yet another challenge. The fire ultimately could have started earlier, maybe even elsewhere on the plane. So they think they figured out that the generator is involved, but they can't confirm it. Ultimately, because the plane was so damaged, the NTSB released their accident report about a year later in August of 1984, and they concluded that the safety board could not determine the exact cause of the fire. They said that they're, I mean, effectively... The the cause was simply left as undetermined. I mean, it's it's a it's a horrible way for a flight like that to end, as far as the investigation is concerned. So this is basically like an unsolved mystery to this point. Like it kind of is. Wow. It kind of is. And if you think that's where the story ends, one more time, not quite. The report, in addition to being inconclusive was very critical of the pilots. In part, the report stated a few, uh, I'm going to call them controversial conclusions. These are a couple of direct quotes from the NTSB report. According to their findings, the source of the smoke was never identified either by the flight attendants or the first officer. The captain was never told, nor did he inquire as to the precise location and extent of the fire which had been reported to him. Crew member reports that the fire was abating misled the captain about the fire severity, and he delayed his decision to declare an emergency and descend. Because of the delayed decision to descend, the airplane lost the opportunity to be landed at Louisville. Had the airplane been landed at Louisville, it could have been landed three to five minutes earlier than it actually did land at Cincinnati. The delayed decision to descend and land contributed to the severity of the accident. This was a survivable accident. Oh, that's not what we want to hear. I mean, that's not what those families want to hear, you know, the survivors, that everything that they've gone through, you know, because I'm sure in those situations, if I get out alive, I'm going to be thankful at mm-hmm. least in the moment, right, to everybody on board who helped to get us there safely or at least helped to save my life. But then when the official accident comes out, they come to an entirely different conclusion. And by the way, I'm not a technical person about these stories, right? I mean, we've said from the beginning, this is not a technical podcast. You're not going to learn how to fly a plane or anything listening to us at all. This is about the stories. right? And so clearly there has to be precedent or rules or procedures or something that the NTSB is looking at to say, this is what they should have done and here's why. And yet exactly. it's, it's kind of received with some controversy at the same time. Well, it is. And When the report was released, the findings were particularly devastating to uh, Captain Cameron and First Officer We Met, who obviously survived and obviously had the opportunity to read the report. In fact, Cameron later said, um, and this is a quote from him, all I know was that I did the best I could. 
I'm very sorry the people that didn't get off didn't get off because we spent a lot of time and effort getting them there, meaning getting them to Cincinnati. It's a heartbreaking statement when you think about it, because although human error factors into almost everything that goes on on this planet, certainly when we're talking about aviation, you don't want to hear that human error resulted in loss of life under any circumstances. And for the report to confirm that it was the fault of the pilot, that they did not land earlier, that they were not able to save more lives, it's an enormous weight to put on his shoulders, especially when you think about the timeline of events. We're talking about mere minutes. We're talking about fact-finding. We're also talking about a situation where fires on board were not that uncommon. This is the era of the cigarette. They thought it was a cigarette. They, they had no other indicator to tell them that there was anything more serious going on. And so the report places a lot of blame and a lot of responsibility on Cameron. A couple of months later, though, on December 20th, 1984, the NTSB received a petition for reconsideration of probable cause from the Airline Pilots Association, and they went to bat for Captain Cameron. Specifically, they took issue with the NTSB's finding that Cameron delayed his decision to descend, which contributed to the loss of life on board. They called attention to the fact that Cameron had received conflicting information from WeMet and flight attendant Sergio Benetti, each of whom had confirmed at different points in time that the conditions were getting better and suggested that the fire, wherever it happened to be, was under control. Like we've said, bin fires were not uncommon in the 1980s, and when they started, they were often handled by the cabin crew without further intervention from the pilots. So, they really wanted to make sure that that was reflected in the report. There was another issue that they also called attention to, and that, that was related to the landing at Cincinnati. At the time of the Mayday call, Cincinnati was not the closest airport. Um, as referenced before, Standiford Field Airport in Louisville, Kentucky was closer, and the NTSB concluded that if they had landed there, they would have saved lives. First officer we met, actually testified that landing at Louisville really wasn't a possibility. When the electrical outages began and Captain Cameron lost his flight instruments, he had to literally fight the plane to descend and eventually land. Given those conditions, a landing at Louisville wasn't possible because the airport was too close to descend safely. Wow. See, what's really interesting about, about this is it's almost like you've got the official first NTSB report, which is mm -hmm. very clinical, right? It's yes. very much oh, very, based very. on the ideal, right? You should have based on this. And in, in a lot of cases, in most cases, I think that's completely accurate and dead on. Yeah. But there's also the real, the reality of the situation. Um, we've seen like, for example, the miracle on the Hudson flight, right? Yep. Where the NTSB criticize the actions of the pilots and what they unnecessarily didn't take into consideration was the human factor in a crisis like that and the actual right. decision-making time and those certain things. And so I feel like there's a parallel between that kind of clinical look, the highly, highly objective clinical ideal look at a situation versus the reality on the ground. And I feel like that's what the Pilots Association was really going to bat for, which is yeah. there is a human element here that no one potentially could have foreseen or expected. And we really want you to think about how that then, you know, 
has this this outcome. Yeah, that's, I, that's a complicated situation because I can see both sides, by the way. <laughs> no, I, I think you're totally right about that. It really comes down to the fact that there are a couple of different sets of data that go into these kinds of reports. There's the technical data. You know, there's the data that relates to, you know, what instrument readings are telling you. And there's even the data related to how you're trained and whether or not you follow training protocols. But there's also the in the moment decision making that in some cases saves lives. Remember, the flight attendants were not necessarily trained on how to tell people to open emergency exit doors. They were not trained that they should give people wet towels to place over their faces. Those actions saved lives. If they had followed things by the book, those are not decisions they may have made. And so that extends also to what was going on in the cockpit. When the when uh, Captain Cameron is asked, you know, can you make it to Cincinnati? Sure, Louisville might be closer. And maybe it would even make sense to want to get into Louisville if you can get on the ground faster. But he's fighting the aircraft. It's not just a, yeah, let me push a few buttons and we're going to land this. It's a situation where he has to have enough time to be able to get the plane on the ground safely. A landing in Louisville, we don't know if it would have been that kind of landing. It could have been a crash landing. It could have been an aborted landing. There's a lot you don't know. That's obviously a route that wasn't taken. But it does go to show that sometimes these reports do not capture a full story or all sides to a story or all components that might lead you to a conclusion. The uh, the uh, Airline Pilots Association and also additional testimony from we met ended up convincing the NTSB to release a revised report. Wow. That doesn't it, happen very often. It so does that's- not. That's commendable. And it altered, uh, but not completely changed the conclusions that they had reported. Specifically, they removed the word delayed from their findings um, with all of the information related to the plane's descent. So the in, instead, the report now reads that the time taken to evaluate the nature of the fire and to decide to initiate an emergency descent was a contributing factor to the disaster's outcome. It does not specifically say that the captain was delayed in his decision making, but it it does all it, it doesn't quite back away from some of those statements. So it was a bit of a retraction, but not a very strong one. The report remained quite critical of Cameron. It did not absolve him uh, from what the NTSB determined was his role in the tragedy. So unfortunately, uh, although I think that the petition certainly achieved some of its goals, it does not completely change what the NTSB determined to be uh, one of the contributing factors to the crash of Flight 797. The flight crew received multiple awards for their heroic actions and efforts to save to save lives. So in a way, report be damned. They, <laughs> they were still <laughs> recognized for the heroes that they were and are. And the flight's legacy still impacts much of what we take for granted as flyers today. Flight 797 was responsible for the FAA's recommendation that smoke detectors be installed on all planes. This is the first time we're talking about smoke detectors because smoke detectors were not a factor. They were not commonly installed and not regularly installed on aircraft in the early 80s. Which is incredible to think about. You know, it's incredible to think about that given people were allowed to smoke 
on the plane. So you would, and, hmm. and knowing that bin fires happen, I mean, I keep coming back to that. Bin fires were such a thing back then that they weren't even worried about it. You would think that a smoke detector might be a solid choice for anything that's going up in the air like that. But okay, they were not common because of this disaster. Uh, they are are now part of the requirements um, so for all planes. Um, it also contributed to requirements that passengers located in the exit row of aircraft be briefed on how to operate the emergency doors if asked to do so by the flight crew. It led to better training and protective equipment for flight crew in the event that a fire starts while the plane is in flight. Um, you know, thinking back to when uh, flight crew went in to attempt to put out a fire that they couldn't see, they did so with a fire extinguisher. They did not have goggles. They did not have masks. They did not have any kind of PPE that otherwise might have helped them to, you know, potentially see or stay longer or not have to fight with the smoke while they were also trying to use the the extinguisher. So all of that became uh, part of regulations because of Flight 797. The other thing that it led to was emergency lighting. Um, emergency lighting was not standard on aircraft at that time. If there had been strip lighting, that would have helped many people as they would have been able to see it, they would have been able to follow it, and many more of them would not have become disoriented while searching for the exit. And that's a really important one because I have always heard that when you get on a plane, the first thing that you should do is count the number of seats to your nearest exit and then the one that's you know the farthest away. Yep. And that's because for that very thing, in case those lights don't come on, you can see. In this case, obviously, they sounds like they didn't have them or didn't nope. have it up. Right. So nope. wasn't part of the plane. That's even worse. <laughs> but the fact that we have them today, but you can't count on them still working or operating, especially if it's a crash landing. So always count, you know, like where I am based on my seat, where the exits are. Exactly. Yeah. There are no guarantees, right? I mean, even yeah. with lighting, even with smoke detectors, there's also the factor of time. And it may not have been possible to do anything more than get the plane on the ground in Cincinnati and save 18 lives. Right. But that said, all of these protections, all of these requirements, they were not part of flying in 1983. And because of Flight 797 and because of the flight's legacy, they are part of making travel safe for us today. And so with that, that is the tale of Air Canada Flight 797. Wow. I mean, this one had a lot of twists and turns, right? So first you have the, the pilots trying to figure out what is the source of the smoke. And it's like, it's this. Oh, no, it's not. Maybe it's this. Nope, it's not that either. And then, okay, all of a sudden we're in emergency mode. And, yeah. you know, you've got the flight attendants who are basically operating, you know, outside of their training manuals to do what they think is right. I mean, that's yep. amazing too. Then we get to the end where we think, you know, we're landed. Okay, there's going to be survivors, hopefully, fingers crossed. And while there are, not everybody makes it off the plane. And yep. then we go to the investigation, twist after turn after twist after turn. And then we have the kind of revised report based on the advocacy from the Pilots Association. I mean, this one yeah. is a really, really unique story from that perspective. And I think it sheds light on how... So like we have the advantage, the 2020 hindsight, right? So we can look sure. at things and say, well, perhaps they should have known this or they should have looked there. But in the moment with those sets of circumstances, with that amount of information, it's not always so clear, you know, it's not always what we think it is on the outside looking in. You know, you think about 
any decision that you make and how other people can help to shape that and inform that decision at any time, sometimes with very positive outcomes and sometimes with more negative outcomes. And I think the important thing here, I'm thinking especially about Captain Cameron, who he's in control of the aircraft. He is getting information from people who have been back into the cabin, into the lavatory to evaluate the situation. They return. One of them says we should go down. The other one comes back and says, actually, it looks like it's getting better. Passengers are reporting that the smoke is disappearing. I mean, you're getting conflicting information. You're getting a lot of information. And I think all of that combined, it just goes to show that sometimes, even with the best of intentions, it can be very difficult to make a correct decision or a right decision. And sometimes you simply end up doing the very best you can with what you have. If they had had more time, it does not necessarily guarantee a different outcome in this case. You know, especially thinking... The flames, I mean, they were on board. You couldn't see them at that point. The smoke is toxic. It's full of chemicals that are combustible. If they had opened those emergency doors a couple of minutes earlier, would there still have been a flash fire? Would they have had time to tell people how to operate the emergency exits? There are so many things that were going on. And you know, that timeline may have been condensed to a point that they couldn't have done some of those life-saving tasks if they had landed earlier. And we now know, of course, it wasn't even possible to land right. in Louisville. They had to go to Cincinnati. So there's this, there's so much to consider with something like that. And I, I got to say, it kind of breaks my heart that the NTSB report focuses so much on the human error component of this. I mean, this flight had 74 issues in the logbook, and they're still sending it up there. I mean... You know, you, you have to think there must have been something in there that contributed to that. And although they couldn't conclusively say so, it, it becomes pretty clear that there was a wiring issue somewhere in there. And the uh, frankly, the flight crew shouldn't have had to deal with this at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, then we think about the legacy of this flight, right? The fact that we've got smoke detectors on planes yeah. today and the emergency floor lighting strips because of this Air Canada flight. I mean, I feel like the next time I'm on a plane, I'm going to think of this flight because I didn't know that. So that's that's a really interesting part of this story too, and that it does have such a significant legacy. Yeah. you know, And maybe that's the takeaway. There were 23 people who passed away that day. And every time we fly from now on and we think about the smoke detectors and we see the track lighting, we remember them. And we remember that although they shouldn't have had to die, especially in that manner, their legacy lives on with absolutely every safe flight that happens from this point forward, from that day forward. And it's not necessarily a legacy you might choose for yourself, but it's a phenomenal legacy to be part of, making everybody safe every time they get on a plane. That's right. Of course, none of us know really when we're going to fly again, you know, given... state stay at home all of that stuff that you know we're all we're all dealing with right now that's so sadly true Shelly as I look out my window the same window I only look out every day now (laughs) you know I do think that at least at this point in time you know at the point of this recording they're talking about relaxing some of the state restrictions there's lots of different opinions about that of course but I still think given all that we're probably a little bit longer away from flying than we are to maybe going to see our 
our nail people and hairdressers and barbers, you know, that's probably going to happen way sooner. And yeah, I do miss travel. I do. It's, It's kind of one of these things where I'm super thankful we're all healthy and I'm, you know, missing the things that we used to kind of take for granted and be able to do kind of really freely. Yeah. Although I have to say, I think I miss my hairstylist most of all right now. (laughs) I was like moments away from going in for some highlights. And now, um, yeah, I'm really, a a lesson I've learned in all of this is don't put things off because you never know when your eight-week appointment becomes a 16-week appointment. (laughs) (laughs) And you can't do video calls anymore because you're too ashamed. (laughs) You've you've got hair shame. (laughs) It's not good. And I realize we're all getting to that point for various, like, no matter what your hairstyle is, you're at the point now where you really wish you were doing something different. But, oh, gosh, it will be good that first time you sit down in that chair. It'll be tempting not to tell her to shave it off at this point. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in addition to, to missing travel, one of the things that I've kind of gotten into recently in the evening, so after, you know, we've wrapped up our day and my son goes to sleep, um, I started binging a series on Netflix called The Innocence Files. Um, it's really great. It's so if anybody like us likes true crime, um, this is basically some stories coming out of the Innocence Project and their work to free wrongfully convicted people, um, many of them who are on death row. And it's amazing because you tell the stories through the eyes and voices of those who have been wrongly convicted. And it's amazing all of the work that. The Innocence Project has to do to, you know, find them not guilty eventually or exonerate mm-hmm. them. And it's it's just incredible. It's kind of like a very sobering reminder, you know, of the situations out there in the world. And there's many of them that are so far worse off than my situation in my living room, you know, missing the things that I miss, of <laughs> course. <laughs> and for anybody who likes that, I highly recommend it because it's very binge worthy. I think binge-worthy TV is going to be the theme of 2020. I mean, I I work my way through Tiger King. I can't necessarily say (laughs) I enjoyed it, but I did it. I had to know what happened. I've now seen the eighth episode. I've, I want, there was something else. There was some like secondary like expose that was done on some cable channel that I've watched. I mean, I feel like I'm fully caught up. I understand the internet 2020 from that perspective now makes sense to me, but <laughs> I know, right? I mean, that was the biggest thing for oh, me was like, gosh. what is everybody talking about? So I, I got through the first six episodes. I've still got two more. I will probably eventually finish the last two because apparently there are some really dark and twisted turns at the, the end there. So yeah, you know, I'll probably go back. Much, much like today's story, there's a lot to unpack with Tiger King, just a lot <laughs> to discuss and a lot to understand. Oh. And frankly, a lot that is never going to make sense, no matter how much I think about it. And in fact, I try not to think about it now. Some Completely. of it was just too messed up to uh, to go back to. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, the good news, though, is that as far as we're concerned, we still have a lot of stories to share with you. And if you have stories you would love to hear from us. If there is an air disaster that has piqued your interest, if there's a story that you remember from a news 
broadcast or something like that from a while back and you'd love to hear our take on it, let us know. We would love to hear from you. If you are into social media and you're feeling social, you want to get in touch with us that way. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Take to the Sky Podcast. And you can definitely find us on our website, which is TakeToTheSkyPodcast.com. That is absolutely where you're going to want to go to find show notes. You're going to want to find resources that we've mentioned as far as our research is concerned, especially for today for clips and interviews and pictures. Um, So definitely head there if you're looking for some more information. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And definitely don't forget to join us next time. Um, This has been Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast with Shelly Price and me, Stephanie Hupka, and we will see you next time.